Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for providing my every need and giving me the strength to make it through. I pray that I listen for your voice today and cast all my worries on you. Help me to see others through your eyes and notice the opportunities you have for me. Let me love others as you do, forgive and let be. Please take away the anxiety and stress that I may trust and rely on you and rest. In every moment of every day, may I open my heart to you and pray, asking you not only to meet my needs, but how I'll serve as the Spirit intercedes. Thank you for being with me, even in my darkest days, and forgiving me for wronging you in so many ways. Help me to pray, for better or worse, but most importantly, to always pray first. I'd like to welcome those of you who are uh, joining us on the live stream right now, and what a great opportunity that is. I know for myself, uh, two weeks ago, uh, I and several others were joining the live stream from the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, so no matter how low things are in your life, Got you beat. Anyway, it's good to have you uh, with us today. Those of you in Skagit, thanks for joining us as well with Pastor Brian on there. And those of the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, thanks for joining us. And here in Bellingham, you got up, you got your clocks all figured out, you're here. Uh, so it's good to have you here. We're in the fifth week of this series, Pray First, where we are looking each weekend at different prayers and their prayers throughout the Old and New Testament, men and women. We've been looking at that. And our goal is not just to study prayers or to know about their prayers. Our goal is that these, these stories, these, these events would inspire us to pray and inspire us to a life of prayer. And not just what we're doing on the weekends, but the daily prayer reflections in the Pray First booklet, the, the uh, resources online, the prayer wall, the small groups, all of that would help this to be just woven into the fabric of our being here at Cornwall Church because we think this is so important. This is, this is just paramount that we would be a people of prayer. C.S. Lewis, um, brilliant man, you, many of you have been impacted by his books or at least entertained by some of his books. He said that the first step or the first rule of spiritual growth is this, be busy learning to pray. And when he says be busy, I don't think he's talking about just filling up your life with busy work and meaningless minutiae. I think what he's talking about here is not putting this off till some other date, but be about it right now and fill your life with the priority of learning to pray. It kind of sounds a little bit like the, the foundational verse that we have for this series that Paul said in the book of Colossians when he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And it's been exciting to hear different individuals or couples or small groups or families or ministries that have seen a, just a, an uptick in their, in their prayer life, maybe a, a dramatic shift in their prayer life, and we just believe that this is what God would have for every single one of us. As I mentioned uh, briefly at the beginning, and some of you are aware, about a week ago I returned from a trip to Israel with a group uh, here, and I could, I could seriously talk for hours right now about that trip. It was phenomenal, but I won't. Um, however, in two weeks on Palm Sunday weekend, uh, about uh, at least half of my sermon was already recorded in Israel. It's going to be a unique experience. I hope you won't miss that. But I did want to tell you about two things that happened while we were in Israel. One of them is that 
while we were in Jerusalem, on four different occasions, I went to the Western Wall. It's often referred to by tourists and Americans as the Wailing Wall. Jewish people don't call it the Wailing Wall. It's the Western Wall. Maybe you've seen a picture of this. It's the wall of, of, of the Temple Mount where the temple used to be, which is now where the Dome of the Rock is, controlled by the Muslims. So Jewish people are not allowed up there. So this is the closest they can come physically to where the temple once was. And Jewish men and women come to this wall to pray, to be close to where the temple was, where the Holy of Holies was, where the tabernacle, all that. And as they're praying, one of the customs or one of the traditions is to write down their request or their petition, what they're praying for on a piece of paper, and tuck that into the cracks in the rocks. Now this is me, that's my hand. A few freckles there in case you were wondering about the hand there. That's mine. And I have a piece of paper here. It was from our prayer wall. And a friend of mine gave it to me and said, would you put this in the wall, the western wall? And so I took it there and I prayed for that and, and, and put it in the crack there uh, with the other request. And it's a wonderful thing. But here's what I love about the prayer wall that we have here in Bellingham and in Skagit is that the prayer wall we have is interactive. That yes, you can write down your request and leave them there. But you can also take someone else's request, request and pray for them and not just leave them there. And so if you haven't utilized this or you've done it once or twice and, and then quit, I would encourage you to utilize that prayer wall to leave some prayer requests so that others can join you in praying for those things and take one or two or four of requests of your brothers and sisters and journey with them together as we become more and more of a praying people. The second thing that happened toward the end of the trip while we were in Jerusalem is that it just so happened that with the Jewish calendar that there was a holiday that fell while we were in Jerusalem. The holiday is Purim. And Purim uh, is one of the most joyful, fun holidays in the entire Jewish calendar. I mean, it is met with drinking and eating and feasting and music and dancing and costumes for children and fireworks. Think a little bit of New Year's Eve with some Halloween for the kids and just a touch of Mardi Gras thrown in. That's what this festival is. And the interesting thing is that this festival, this, this celebration, this holiday, Prim, started in 473 B.C., almost 2,500 years ago. And you can read about this, the start and, and where it came from in the book of Esther, chapter 9. It says, this is why, or that is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pur, which means lot. That's part of the story I'll tell you about later. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. I'll tell you about that as well. Verse 28, these days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So, 2,500 years later, we're in Jerusalem. They're celebrating like crazy. One night I could barely get to sleep because the band across the street was playing into the wee hours of the morning while the Jewish people are dancing and having a great time. It's an amazing thing. Why is it that they celebrate this for 2,500 years? They're celebrating a time when the providential hand of God provided for them protection and deliverance to keep them from being annihilated. It's a story that we'll look at briefly uh, today. But what's interesting about this this whole festival is that they're, they're feasting and they're celebrating. But if you understand the story, that before there was feasting, there was fasting. That before they got to the big party part, there was this part where they would fast and where they would pray and where they would seek God. It's kind of almost 
the antithesis of how Lent is often observed in America. In Lent, start on Fat Tuesday, where there's all this revelry and feasting and partying, and then on Ash Wednesday, go into this time of fasting to give something up and, and to move on. Theirs is just the opposite. You pray first and you party later. It's kind of like a Jewish mullet. Pray on the front side, party in the back. Fast up front, then we'll feast. Sorry if I offended you with that, but it's a good illustration, I think. It explains it all. So that is the aspect or the element I want us to focus on today. This spiritual discipline, this exercise, this aspect of prayer that is rarely talked about in the American church today and rarely practiced and very often misunderstood, and it's fasting. Now, I'll give you the most condensed version of fasting that I can. This is a definition. It's not in your notes, but you can write it down if you want. It's simply self-denial for spiritual purposes. That, in essence, is what fasting is. Self-denial for spiritual purposes. And throughout the pages of Scripture, Moses fasted, Daniel fasted, David fasted, Elijah fasted, the prophets fasted, the people of Israel fasted, Jesus fasted, the apostle Paul fasted, John the Baptist fasted, Anna fasted, the disciples fasted, and all throughout church history, people have fasted. Now, there are times when it has been misunderstood, when it's even been abused, when it's been carried out to extremes that, that God never intended. There was a season in church history where some guys referred to as the desert fathers went to this extreme measure of asceticism, of this self-denial, to the point where they would almost starve themselves to death in trying to achieve a, a greater piety or, or a higher spirituality. And then very often it was, it was even motivated by recognition from others. And it was far extreme. It's not what God calls us to. Nothing in the Bible would say to do that. And sometimes in correction, we overcorrect and we pendulum swing the other way. So instead of this self-denial, there's this self-indulgence. Again, when I was raised in the church in the little, as, a, as a young child, I remember very often seeing pastors and thinking, man, they're not like desert fathers that deny themselves. They're like dessert fathers that indulge themselves. They're like the king of the potluck and the ice cream social. And like, just give me more, give me more, give me more. And somewhere I'm wondering, isn't there a biblical balance? And I'm hoping that maybe today in our time, for just a moment, we can maybe get a little bit of a clear picture not exhaustively, but a little bit of a picture of what did God have in mind with this spiritual discipline of fasting, of, of self-denial for a spiritual purpose. And maybe we can learn and even practice this in a way that is God-honoring and how he intended for us to do this. Now, as I said, God's people have always utilized this. The, the uh, prophet Joel, speaking for God, said these words, "'Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly.'" Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So he says, we're going we're gonna to call all of the, the whole nation to come and to pray and to fast and to cry out to the Lord. Daniel, who will be our prayer that we focused on next week, Daniel says this, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now my guess is, the word and practice of fasting may not be completely foreign to you because often you hear about fasting as a part of some health routine. Maybe it's a part of a, a fad diet, of fasting to lose some weight. 
Or maybe fasting is a part of some kind of a, a system cleanse that you're going to do or whatever. And, and that holds its own values, I suppose. And maybe there's a chance that you've had a medical instruction to fast in preparation for a, a procedure or for a surgery or for a blood draw or whatever, that they would ask you to fast for this many hours. And just you understand that piece. Fasting has been seen in our world for social and political issues, a hunger strike. Gandhi was big with this, a nonviolent protest. I'm going to stop eating until the leadership pays attention to this social ill that needs to be addressed. And all of those hold their place. But that is not what we're talking about today. We want to look at what is biblical fasting. And when it comes to biblical fasting, there are always these elements involved. Humility, denial, and prayer. That we would humble ourselves before the Lord. There would be some form of self-denial, and it would be met with prayer. Often, often you find that there's another piece of it that is repentance, because very often it is because someone or some group has strayed so far, they are praying and fasting and repenting to get right back in a, in a right relationship with their creator, with their God. But we want to look at this. And as I said, it seems like it has been done wrong forever. I mean, Zechariah, the prophet, he says to Israel, for 70 years you've been fasting two months a year and you're doing it wrong. They, they, Doing it wrong for 70 years. Someone's got to correct this. Isaiah chapter 58. The whole chapter, Isaiah is saying, the way you're fasting, you're doing it wrong. He corrects him. In fact, it says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Note to self, if whatever spiritual discipline you engage in results in you beating up your brother, it probably didn't work. You're doing it wrong. If every time you get done praying and reading scripture, you pick a fight with someone, something's off. And he says, you guys have been fasting, but every time you end up fasting, you end up fighting. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And then he goes on to say, this is the kind of fast I want, that you would, you would right the social injustices. You would help the poor. You would, you would make a difference in this world. Jesus addresses some of the abuses of fasting in a story that he tells as well as on the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's back up. What I want us to do is, again, look at a prayer and how this prayer incorporated fasting. And I want us to look at this story out of the book of Esther. Now, we're only going to really focus on a couple of verses, but I have to give you the whole context of the book of Esther. Esther's a unique, a unique book in the Bible. Esther stands alone in that. Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God. It does not mention his name. It doesn't give pronouns for him or titles for him. Esther is the only book that was not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Esther is not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. And because of those reasons, there were some early uh, church history fathers, Calvin and Luther for one, that, that didn't even want it to be a part of the scriptures. But what's interesting is that while the mention of God is conspicuously absent from the book, the presence of God, the providential hand of God, the fingerprints of God are all over the story. You see him working all throughout this story. Now, historical context, last week, Pastor Kip talked about Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes. If you don't remember that, you can watch that online. This happened about 30 to 35 years before. Artaxerxes' dad, whose name was Xerxes. There you have that. Xerxes and his son, Artaxerxes. So now you know how to name your next born, or what have you. 
So Artaxerxes' dad, Xerxes is the king. And Xerxes is the most powerful man on the planet, the wealthiest man, a bit of a chauvinist, and pretty egotistical. Of course, he's the most powerful man in the world. He has a queen. Her name is Vashti. Vashti is a woman of values and standard and self-respect, a little bit of strong will and independence, which is a good thing. And then there's a guy named Haman who ends up being the number two in charge. Haman, it appears, is a little bit insecure, but is a definite megalomaniac. So this is like the king's inner circle. The king, Xerxes, Vashti, his queen, and Haman, his number two guy. But in the story, there's another key player, and it's a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is not a part of the king's inner circle. He's not a part of the king's cabinet. He's not a part of that at all. Mordecai, it says, is a Jew. And if you look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, you can kind of put together that it implies that Mordecai was taken from Jerusalem when the Babylonian exile took place. When Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, took them from Jerusalem and took them off to Babylon, that Mordecai may have been a part of that as well. And so Mordecai appears to be this God-fearing Jewish man, and he has a cousin. And this is where we pick up in Esther chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Hadassah translated is the name Myrtle. Every time I hear the name Myrtle, I'm taken to my childhood because there were two women in the two churches I was a part of as in my childhood. One was Myrtle Smith, and the other one was Myrtle Tucker. Both of these Myrtles in my childhood mind were ancient, probably 55 at least. (laughs) I just thought these Myrtles are so incredibly old, these ladies named Myrtle. And as I got older, they got older. And it's, it's, they were in a category of women in my childhood memory. Women with names that you don't hear a lot anymore. Ida, Maud, Mabel, Gladys. You know, um, the, the, these women, Melba. These, you, don't, you don't hear those names a lot. These women were all old in my mind. And I hear Mordecai has a cousin and her name is Myrtle. And in my mind, immediately she goes in this category of 50-something and older women. Old. Hadassah. Whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. So she's an orphan, and she's being raised by a cousin who is probably a bit older than her. Now, this is where you begin to see she's not in that old woman category. This girl, that, that word girl, We find out later that she's actually a young virgin that's never been married. Most likely, this girl that we're talking about, this Myrtle, is somewhere between 15 and 22 years old, a young girl. This girl was also known as Esther. Esther translated means star. And here's how you can always remember this for your Bible trivia. Esther sounds like a star. So now you will always remember that. Okay, so she's also known as Esther. And here's how we know that she is probably not an ancient woman. Was lovely in form and features. I don't want to be offensive to anybody. I already have been, I know. (laughs) But these ladies that I remember from my childhood, Ida and Maude and Melba and, and Myrtle, these were beautiful, beautiful women on the inside. Esther, Esther was 
attractive to look at, appealing physically. She was lovely in form and features this young virgin, this this beauty queen, and Mordecai, her cousin, had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. How they died, when they died, we don't know. Was it in the Babylonian exile? Was it when Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar came in? Did they rebel? Did they come? Did they get old? Did they die? We don't know. All we know is she's this young, beautiful, unmarried uh, orphan girl who's raised by her cousin. Now, that's Esther. We'll get back to her. Here's how the story goes. Xerxes, king, is pretty proud of his kingdom and all that he has. And he's having a party with some friends, and they drink a little too much, and he decides that he wants to show off his kingdom and especially his bride. He says, I want you to see my queen. She's amazing. So he calls for Vashti. Vashti, come in here. Remember, Vashti's a self-respecting woman who's a bit independent and, and uh, you know, kind of just maybe just going to say, you know, that's not going to happen. So she says, listen, it's my paraphrase, I am not a piece of meat. I'm not going to be paraded in front of all your drunk friends to show off for you. I'm not coming. So she sends word back to Xerxes, I'm not going to be there. Now, his key guys hear this and they say, "Uh uh-oh, hey, hey, Xerxes, if word of this gets back to our wives, if they find out that your wife said no to you and nothing happened, our wives, there will be no living with them anymore. You've got to do something about this. And Xerxes says, you're right. So he dethrones her as queen. She's not allowed to see him again. She's taken away all of her position and privilege, everything that goes with being queen. She is no longer queen. That's it. Done with you. All right, over. Now he's without a queen. The next portion of the story is really a combination of the Hunger Games and a season of The Bachelor. And I'm not kidding you. Because they go through all the districts and they look for all the young virgins and bring them in for this big competition. Then it becomes a season of The Bachelor and they start narrowing it down. And the final rose goes to Esther. She wins and she becomes the queen. Now in the midst of all this, Haman has been elevated to number two. And everywhere he goes, people bow down and honor him. Everyone does, that is, except Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down and honor Haman. And there's a lot of reasons why maybe that's the case. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's because he is a God-fearing Jew and that he will not bow down to anyone except Yahweh. Regardless of the reason, this really bothers Haman. So much that he says, I want Mordecai killed. And then he second guesses himself and says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Scratch that thought. I don't, it's not good enough just to have Mordecai killed. I want all of his people annihilated from the face of the earth. You see, this anti-Semitic mindset has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. He's calling for a Jewish genocide. He's calling to have them completely wiped off the face of the planet. Now, in the course of all this, Mordecai finds out. And Mordecai sends a message to his cousin that he's raised, who is now queen, and says to to Esther, listen, go before Xerxes and plead for mercy. Haman had an edict put in the Medes and the Persians. We don't have time to go into all that, but it meant it was irrevocable. It said, go to Xerxes and plead for mercy. Esther knows that Xerxes is not real wild about strong-willed, ex- uh, assertive women. She knows what happened to Vashti. And on top of that, she knows the way things operate in the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 11, 
She says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. She said, Mordecai, I can't just waltz in there. We're not allowed to do that. No one's allowed to do that. I can't even request an appointment with him. I can only go in if he summons me, if he calls for me. And if I were to do that, he has a law that he'd be put to death. Whoever it is that would come in would be put to death. That seems a little extreme to me. I mean, there's times in my office when I close my door, I'm working on a sermon, it means do not disturb, and sometimes staff members come in, I'm not going to kill them. It just seems a little extensive, like the punishment is a little extreme for the, the infraction here, but that's how he has it set up. Don't bother me, I'm studying, come in, I'll cut your head off. So she says, that's the way it operates. So there is one exception. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. You begin to understand that this relationship between Xerxes and Esther was a relationship of convenience on Xerxes' part. It wasn't like they had a tight marriage where they had date nights and doing all this deep talking and questions and walks through the kingdom palace and gardens. No, he only called for her when he wanted her for whatever he wanted her for. And she says... He hasn't even talked to me for 30 days. I can't just go in there. And then Mordecai does this two-pronged approach with Esther. He gives her a reality check, and then he gives her this, this life destiny pep talk. The reality check is this. Esther, if Haman carries through on this edict and all the Jews are killed, do you think that you're going to be spared? You think they don't find out that you're Jewish too? I mean, you're going to die anyway if something doesn't happen. And then he shifts gears, and he goes into this pep talk, and he says, in essence, listen, maybe, and he doesn't use this word God, but I'm going to, maybe God has orchestrated and designed and, and put all of this together so that you became queen, and maybe the whole reason for all this, he says, maybe you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther, this is your destiny. Maybe the whole reason you're even queen is because of this crossroads, and what you decide here will define your whole life and our whole people. And this is where we see that Esther is more than just a pretty face in the crowd. She's more than just attractive and appealing to look at physically. Here we begin to see the courage. We begin to see the depth. We begin to see the, the spiritual insights that Esther has, and here's where it ties in with our pray first. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And what we see here is that Esther is this woman of spiritual insight and depth. And she said, in this kind of a situation where the, 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 the need is so dire. This is the kind of time where we go to prayer and fasting. And she is a woman who prays and fasts, and she has those around her praying and fast. And look at this. She even calls up 
her cousin who has raised her, who's been like a father, she calls him up to a higher level. Mordecai, you pray and fast too. She calls her people to unify and to come together. Let's do this together. Let's pray and let's fast. And then she does this, when then? When this is done, when we have prayed and we have fasted, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. Remember last week when Pastor Kip talked about Nehemiah? And I thought this was such a great insight that Nehemiah prayed for four months before he worked for two months. He prayed first and then he went. Esther does the same thing. We're going to pray and fast and then I'll go. But we're going to pray first. And then I'll go. And then she makes one of the most courageous decisions and statements of all. This woman was incredibly brave. And she says, and if I perish, I perish. I'll go. So she prays, she fasts, the servants around her pray, and they fast. Mordecai prays, and he fasts. The Jewish people of Susa, they pray, and they fast. Verse 17, so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And they're all praying and fasting for three days. Now, the story goes on, but this is the point I want us to really camp on. I, I, I hate to leave you hanging, no pun intended for those of you who know how the story ends. I hate to keep you hanging, but... But they pray and they fast, and God moves in ways that can only be described as only God. God orchestrates some things with a night of insomnia and an old history book and a gallows and all these things and puts it together. God orchestrates in, in Esther as they're praying and fasting for her that he brings about this divine savviness as she, she uh, implements and executes this plan with such cunning and such shrewdness and such prowess that results in the Jews are rescued and justice is served. But what I want us to look at is that it was because they united and they prayed and they fasted. Esther prayed and fasted. When you look at biblical fasting throughout the pages of scripture, there's this fasting communally and individually. As we've already seen, Daniel is in a, in a land where no one's even following God, at least not in, in, the, uh, in the, the Babylonian land, but some of the Jews are. But he alone is praying and fasting. Jesus alone goes to pray and fast. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But then there are these other times when Joel calls the whole congregation, the whole, the whole nation to pray and fast. When Esther calls for all the, the followers of God in Susa to pray and fast. And it seems that there's something powerful that happens when out of the right motive, a group of people decide to unite together and humble themselves before the Lord, deny themselves, and pray and repent that God does something with it. When it's done in the right way for the right purposes, that God does a little, little, little bit of a rabbit trail. Let me use this to illustrate some of you may remember the story of Jonah. And whether or not you believe the story is true, that, it's irrelevant to what I'm, the point I'm making. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was not a Jewish city. Nineveh was an Assyrian city, which was an enemy of the people of God and against everything that God stood for. They didn't follow the Torah. They weren't followers after Yahweh. And Nineveh had become so wicked, and no details are given. They had become so wicked for so long that God said, enough. Now, I'll tell you this. 
It takes a lot to get our God to say enough. Very rarely did he do that. Sodom and Gomorrah, yes. Nineveh is right on the cusp, and he says, that's it. I'm not putting up with this anymore. This world will be better without these people, without this town. Enough. And then he sends Jonah. Here's what's amazing. This Assyrian king, who's not a follower after Yahweh, doesn't keep the Torah, is not God's people, not Jewish. He says this out of Jonah. He issued a proclamation. Hold on to that word for a second. A proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, so the the leader and his cabinet, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. That's the self-denial part. That's the denial. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. That's an outward expression of an inner position, a posture of humility. And let everyone call urgently on God. That's the prayer piece. Let them give up their evil ways This is the repentance and their violence. And he says, if we will do this, if we will humble ourselves, if we will deny ourselves, if we will pray, if we will repent, who knows? Who knows? God's already said, it's done. This is such a picture of our gracious, loving, merciful, compassionate God. He says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. We deserve it, he says, but who knows, maybe, just maybe, if we'll come together, humble ourselves, deny ourselves, pray, repent, maybe God will change. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. It only happened Because a united group of people humbled themselves, denied themselves, prayed, and repented. Wouldn't it be great if a nation that was divided, if a nation that was racked with racial tension, if a nation that was grieved almost weakly because of violence would come together and pray and fast. Wouldn't that be great? You know, 145 years ago, our nation was more divided than it had ever been. Literally, north and south, divided. Racial tension beyond that. The inhumane, unthinkable evil of treating human beings worse than animals. And the violence of the bloodiest war in the history of our country, the Civil War, where 620,000 people lost their lives because we were fighting against ourselves. In that dark chapter of our country's history, there was a proclamation that was made. And this is a bit long, but I think it warrants reading it, and I've edited it down. It's still long. A proclamation. Whereas... The Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God. Don't you wish our Senate could recognize that today? The Senate of the United States recognizes the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God. In all the affairs of men and of nations has, by a resolution, requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas... It is the duty of nations as well as of men 
to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do, by this my proclamation, designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation fasting, and prayer. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed by the president, Abraham Lincoln. In Abraham Lincoln's four years of presidency, nine times he proclaimed a national day of prayer and fasting. Nine times. That the nation would humble themselves deny themselves, cry out to God, and repent. And because of that, our nation found the abolishment of slavery, the end of the Civil War, and unfortunately, the end of the life of the one who many would consider, if not the greatest, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. I don't want to get political here, but in my humble opinion, if a president wanted to bring hope and change, or if a president wanted to make America great again, the best first step would be a proclamation like this. Oh, that we would have a president. Oh, that we would have a senate. Oh, that we would have leaders of our nation that would call us to humble ourselves, to deny ourselves, to repent of our sins, and to cry out to the Almighty God. And we can sit here and grouse and complain and grumble about the president and the Senate and this election and that person. We can do that all day long and nothing will change. In fact, it's maybe safe to say that there will never be a proclamation like this in the United States ever again. But even if that never happens in the U.S., what about the other U.S.? Why should that stop the other U.S.? Why should that stop us? Why should that stop us as individual followers of Jesus Christ to do like Daniel did in a nation that didn't even acknowledge God, to cry out, to humble himself, to pray before the Lord, and to fast? What would keep us, Cornwall Church, to being like the Jews in Susa, to come together united, to pray, and to fast? What would keep us from doing this, to humble ourselves, to deny ourselves, to repent where necessary, and to cry out to the Almighty God? See, I, I think, 
I think when it comes to fasting, like for us, and maybe for all the followers, I think this whole fasting thing was Jesus' expectation without legalism. Like, Jesus practiced this. He fasted. He talked about it. He never commanded it, but when he spoke of it in the Sermon on the Mount, twice he said, when you fast, not if you fast. Or how about this in Matthew chapter 9? And John's disciples came to Jesus and asked, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So this legalism thing. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. It's almost like this expectation, of course they're going to fast then. And what if this wasn't just about the 12? What if this was about all the followers who would call themselves Christ followers after he had been taken away? What about us? Not in some extreme legalistic form, but in a biblical way. And, and I think if we were to do this, I think there's some questions that we need to ask, a question that Jesus addressed when it comes to fasting, and that is, am I seeking God or recognition? Because this is the thing that he addressed the most. When he talked about a story in Luke chapter 18 of a Pharisee who was so self-righteous and praying about himself, and one of his prayers was, and I fast twice a week. Like, I want everybody to know this. And in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus referred to it specifically, says this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. You do it for recognition, you better enjoy the recognition, because that's the only benefit you're going to get. He says, but when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting. Like, you don't do this for show. Huh, what? Free samples at Costco? No, I could not dare. I break my fast. Ah, that's not what you do. It's not about showing off for other people. He says, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What is this reward? Answers to prayer? Maybe. Power in your spiritual life? Maybe. There's a time that the disciples were struggling and Jesus said to them, listen, this kind of thing only happens with prayer and fasting. But maybe the reward, the greatest reward, is a connection to your heavenly father, a flourishing relationship, fellowship that you haven't experienced before? How about that? Again, maybe we make it too complicated. I gave you the condensed definition of, of self-denial for spiritual purposes. Let me expand that out just a little bit. Of ex, uh, abstaining from something good in pursuit of something greater. That, that fasting is saying, I'm going to say no to something, even if it's good, because I'm hungering for something greater. I mean, in essence, not in essence, in reality, that's what Lent is about. It's not just about giving up chocolate so you'll drop a few pounds. That has nothing to do with Lent. That has to do with just self-denial for self-denial's sake or for health's sake. Lent is about saying no to some things for the purpose of preparing yourself for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Lent is all about. That's what you give up something for at Lent so that you can pursue something greater. Most often fasting in the Bible talks about food. 
But like in Daniel's case, it wasn't a complete fast. He didn't stop eating altogether. He took certain aspects of the diet out, things that were luxurious, things that weren't necessary. And he had kind of a bland, simple diet. He says, this is the fast that I will do. In Corinthians, Paul talks to married couples and says, there's a God-ordained gift that has been given to you. And there may be seasons where you fast from sexual intimacy for the purpose of prayer and then return again. And for those seasons, most men, it's a very short season. But that's a form of saying no to something good to pursue something even greater. And the reason I believe that hunger and and, and, uh, the food is such an important thing is because our bodies remind us when we don't eat. And when we fast from food, every time our body reminds us, it's a way to remind ourselves that, oh, yes, I'm hungry, but I'm hungering for something more. I'm hungering for something more satisfying. I'm hungering for something greater. That every time our, our bodies remind us, I want to eat, it's a reminder, I'm going to spend this time, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to seek God, and I'm going to humble myself before him. I am choosing to deny myself. I'm abstaining from something good and pursuing something greater. The Joel says this. Declare a holy fast, a sacred assembly. Three weeks from today, we'll gather here to celebrate the greatest event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And there will be literally hundreds and thousands of people that make their annual or semi-annual pilgrimage to the house of worship. They'll be sitting in this room, some out of obligation, some out of tradition, And as they gather, we will celebrate that God took a man who was dead and brought him to life again. That reality. But while we celebrate that reality, our prayer and our hope is that that reality in a spiritual sense will be repeated again and again and again in this room. That men and women who are spiritually dead would come to life and that God would breathe into them the life that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can plan and we can prepare and we're doing all of that. And we'll have a great celebration. But only God can take someone who's spiritually dead and bring them to life again. And what if, what if, just like Nehemiah did, just like Esther did, what if we decided that we will pray first Now listen, I'm not the president of the United States and I cannot make a national proclamation. I'm not the prophet Joel and I can't make a a proclamation for all Christians. I am the pastor of Cornwall Church. And I want to invite you to join me in a biblical fast. That on March 30th, Good Friday, We would call a holy fast, holy, set apart to God. And on that day in our campus here in Bellingham and in Skagit, we'll be having a prayer vigil that's going on. You can sign up. You can be a part of that. But I want to invite you to join me that day. And I'm telling you this not for recognition. I'm telling you this as Esther did. That day I will not be eating. That day, what if we collectively united, humbled ourselves before the Lord, denied ourselves, cried out to him, repented where we needed to repent, and asked God to do something in this room that only God could do, that lives would be transformed, that they would be changed, not for the recognition of anybody else, not for the praise of anybody else, but so that the hand of God would move in a way that can only be described, we could say, that was only because of God.
So I want to invite you to join me in a day of prayer, fasting, humility, and repentance, asking God to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Stand as we close in prayer. Father, our hearts are broken and saddened by the condition of our country, the condition of our community, the condition of our world. And Lord, I pray that our hearts will be broken in those areas in our lives where the condition is still fallen, not yet fully surrendered, not completely redeemed. I pray that we would understand this beautiful gift and that in a healthy, biblical way, we would incorporate this into our lives and into the the rhythm of our church again. Not in any kind of pride-filled recognition way, but simply to humble ourselves, deny ourselves, repent, and cry out to you that you would do something that can only be explained by the hand of God and we'll give you all the glory for it. I pray it in your name. Amen.